rare in politics since people tend to have strong political opinions, milk toast, non-committed, uninformed, against big political shifts. These are some ways the centrist has been defined. I call them all bullshit. You can believe strongly that there is a rational answer. You can be adamant about a sense of fair play and discourse. You can hold that immigrants are part of the fabric of this great country and think we need more control over the southern border. Don't default to some expert or talking head to tell you what you should support. Don't let a party line dictate how you feel on everything or anything, really. Found out we had a lot more in common. Raising money from anyone in the middle. Buzzsaw of, of lobbyists. Think Trump is a master of distraction. Get their hands on nuclear weapons. Is Let's stop talking about bathrooms. Our issues are easier for people to understand. Welcome to The American Centrist, Episode 3, Why It's Okay to Stand Strongly for the Ideals and Values that You Hold. I'm your host, Lou. Thanks for joining us today. This is a new podcast, and we need your input as we develop this conversation. So please share your ideas with us. Let me know what topics you want us to dive into. You can do so at Centrist Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and of course, our website, theamericancentrist.com. Be sure you subscribe, too, so you don't forget to join us next week when we dig into the Democratic debates and see if we can decipher which side just might snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Okay, now, regardless of your political opinion, I think most of us can agree that things have become more divisive than this country has seen in generations. And while there are certainly some who thrive in conflict, I think most of us find it downright stressful. And to take a step further, perhaps more importantly, the partisan gridlock and political battles more intent on payback for some slight or a well-earned win have created a scenario where each turning tide undoes the last. Enter, from a backdrop of chaos, our hero, the American centrist. This is someone who looks at the big picture without the need to align with a party on all aspects. Someone who sees the gray areas and wants to find a plan that can sustain multiple administrations, giving things time to become real solutions. So as we get into this episode, you're going to notice a slight audio change after the first part of this conversation on impeachment. After we recorded the episode, there were some new and very relevant developments on this topic, and we wanted to rehash the conversation. Okay, so on with the show. With me, of course, are co-hosts Jeff and Dave. If you missed the first two episodes where we go into more detail about everyone's background and what we're trying to do on this show, please take a minute, check out episodes one and two to see where these guys stand. Based on their backgrounds, they probably shouldn't be in the same room, never mind actually getting along. You can learn more about the team at theamericancentrist.com. Guys, thanks for joining me. I've got a couple of topics I'd like to delve into, so shall we? Let's go. Let's start big. Impeachment. They've been toying with the idea for quite a while, and now with Biden, the Ukraine, and not one but two whistleblowers, just how close are we? Well, uh, I think we're there. Um, you, you know, and I have been, for a long time, I have been uh, very dubious about this whole impeachment argument. Um, of course, there's been advertising nationwide by Tom Steyer uh, encouraging impeachment for the last year. And and my position had has always been that the best thing we can do is beat Donald Trump at the ballot booth, uh, ballot box in November of next year. Um, we certainly don't want to make him a martyr and uh, 
he feeds off the attention of something like an impeachment. And so I thought it was politically a bad idea, but I think the events that have happened recently uh, with the disclosure of this Ukraine call, the whistleblower, uh, the, the second whistleblower, and then uh, Trump deciding that in the ultimate Trumpish lean-in uh, episode of the last three years to go to the South Lawn and say not only should Ukraine investigate the Bidens, uh, but China should too. I mean, the guy just uh, so went, in that, went over the edge. In that series of events, was was there one specific thing that that pushed you over the edge into really thinking, okay, now it's now it's time to start start pursuing this? Yeah, when when he is uh, holding up military aid uh, from a country in order to push them into investigating his likely political opponent, uh, that is asking a foreign government to interfere with an American election. That's illegal. Doesn't matter if there's a quid pro quo, which there was, uh, but like that is exactly what the Mueller investigation was trying to figure out is whether he was uh, encouraging the Russians to get involved in the election. Uh, The Mueller report was foggy on this, but he admitted to doing it on the South lawn of the white house. So yes, I, that's, that's the game changer for me. So you're, you're all in at this point, Dave, where, where do you stand with, with impeachment here? Well, I think it's, um, it is fraught with risk obviously for Democrats. I think that's one of the reasons why Jeff and a lot of others, including Speaker Pelosi, by the way, uh, wasn't prepared to go down this road until, you know, the whistleblower came forward and you see, uh, you know, the content of that phone call. And then, and then subsequently, as Jeff points out, going on the, the front lawn of the white house and, 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 and not just, not just confirming that he wants the, President of Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, but then adding to it China uh, because uh, of, uh, I believe, the, the hedge fund that Hunter Biden was a part of that was supported with with uh, some Chinese money. But um, it is it is, and it's not just Jeff and Speaker Pelosi, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of these members, Democratic members of Congress, who had been hesitant. Uh, what you're really seeing now is movement in public opinion on a on a major scale. So uh, CNN's poll out um, this week has, I think, 58% of Americans supporting the inquiry, uh, 38% opposing an inquiry. Uh, Now, for supporting impeachment and removal from office, uh, the Democrats still aren't there. Uh, That's, uh, I think, 45% support removal from office, 49% uh, oppose re- removal from office, but you've seen like a huge jump in you know voter opinion on this, even among Republicans. The last uh, check on impeachment and whether or not there should be an inquiry, uh, I think Republicans seven percent of Republicans supported it. Now it's up to twenty eight percent. So uh, e- even if they don't support removing the president, that that brings with it a lot of you know, a, a lot of other stuff. I mean, it's obviously very destabilizing to, you know, just to the public conversation. It would, it would be, it would be a shit show to be honest. And, and I, but I think that with public support kind of building now, most people have come around to the, to the sort of place where we want to find out what's going on here, what's really happening and watching Republicans uh, over this past weekend 
try and wrestle with this question of whether or not it's appropriate to ask a foreign leader to in, you know, involve themselves in domestic politics, um, Republicans are going to have to get this right because uh, it's a pretty simple threshold question. It's, uh, you know, it is not in uh, the country's interest to invite or support foreign involvement in our domestic elections. It just runs against every principle uh, we have. Right. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Mike Pence said that exact same thing during the vice presidential debate three uh, and a half years ago. I mean, that's, uh, you know, he was pretty crystal clear on it. And he's part of it now. So so with inviting Ukraine to, you know, get involved in, in our election and with public support moving up, is this a slam dunk or are there still some some big hills to climb for impeachment to actually result in removal from office. Oh, well, there's a there's a mountain to climb and it's it's called Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell has basically said that he's going to have to deal with it, but he's going to acquit the president as soon as the Senate receives articles of impeachment from the House. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell's wife, who is a part of the Trump cabinet, was fundraising with the president last week. Mitch McConnell's already prejudged this. The only thing that budges Mitch McConnell, and, and Dave and I have talked about this before, is if um, Cory Gardner in Colorado and uh, Senator McSally in Arizona and Senator Ernst in Iowa and a few of these others in Collins in Maine, if it becomes a terrible vote for them to acquit Donald Trump, that's when Mitch McConnell will have to make a decision. Right now, even though the public opinion is shifting right now, uh, McConnell can hold firm and say, I can maintain my Senate majority by acquitting this guy. But as soon as his Senate majority is threatened on this vote, uh, I think he drops Trump like a bad habit. So if he continues supporting, supporting Trump and backing him up, and let's say Trump comes through this impeachment still in office, how does that affect the 2020 election? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that Mitch McConnell is not a uh, you know a monument to sentimentality here. He he will <laughs> he will do what is in uh, the best interests of his majority. Uh, so Jeff's right about that. Look, I, you know, I think he he may actually do the Democrats a bit of a favor by acquitting the president because I think Jeff's original instincts were right, at least on this point, which is that uh, it'd be healthier for the country to take this to the ballot box. Let the voters decide. Let's not make it a Washington, D.C. thing. Let's not subject it to all these partisan games. Um, You know, obviously, I I worked twice for uh, Mitt Romney on his presidential campaigns. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to to sort of be where he is on this, which is it, it was an incredibly wrong thing to do. It sort of violates the, the oath of office. Um, it may not for some people that that may mean that they're very uncomfortable with it, but they don't believe it rises to the level of impeaching the president and removing from office. It, Republicans may come to a, a a bit of a bargain here where they say, well, you know, this isn't right. We need to censure the president, but I'm not willing to to uh, you know repudiate the the voters in 2016 that. That elected Donald Trump, um, so I'd rather you know punt it to November and let the voters decide. So there will be some reasonable Republicans who are very uncomfortable with all of this. They'll want the process to go forward and work. They'll want there to be a trial, not to just immediately dismiss the charges and 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 basically not hold the Senate trial. They'll want to subject it to a process. 
Uh, but then they may vote to acquit the president because they don't believe it's right to put the country through a removal from office. Um, it would be a you know the first time in history and a very painful thing for the country, and especially when you're you know who knows who knows how long it will take to move this process through the House and into the Senate. But if you're doing this in the election year, you know I think it might be better for the country to just punt it to the to the voters and let them decide. And that that may be where a lot of Republicans end up. Don't you think that? There is zero percent chance that Trump resigns. Zero percent chance that Trump resigns. There isn't the same. Uh, we we don't have the same content in the Senate as we did in the seventies when Barry Goldwater, you know, walked up the steps of the White House and sat down with Nixon and said, "You've only got four votes in the Senate, and I'm not one of them." Um, and that led Nixon to resign the next day. You know, we are in a different era now, a much more highly fractured era, a much more highly partisan era. And although I do think that in Congress, work still gets done between the two parties on issues. It's not the stuff that gets covered, doesn't make the news. Uh, a lot of people don't know about it, but um, Republicans and Democrats, you know, often do find ways to to work together. Uh, this isn't going to be one of those issues where they will where they will find that capability, uh, unless, of course, as Jeff uh, rightly points out, public opinion continues to go uh, in the direction it's going and dramatically sort of works against the president. Then uh, it'll be a every Republican senator for themselves. You know, you got going to have to respond to your state and your voters, your constituents, and control the Senate hangs in the balance. And I don't think Mitch McConnell is going to do anything to try to upset that. Uh, but it, it is it is a high risk proposition for both sides, to be perfectly honest, because the Democrats do take a risk here of overplaying their hand, of making the, the, hear, the hearings too partisan. Uh, they should have already taken a vote on the inquiry because that would be following precedent in 98 and in 74. That also allows the White House to involve themselves in the deposition process. I think going by the book that was written by Peter Rodino in the 70s, where the White House was able to participate in the process, uh, makes it seem more fair and less partisan. And they'd be wise to, to go down that road. Uh, maybe, there, maybe Schiff is doing it the way he's doing it because he doesn't believe that he can actually work with Republicans on the committee or no, the White House. No, but that's... That's, I, that's that. No, no, no. That's not the case. I mean, the, the fact that you're just ignoring in saying we should follow precedent is the fact that Trump doesn't follow any rules. And today he's saying that he's going to uh, formally send a letter saying they're not going to cooperate on anything. They're not giving documents. They're not going to agree to uh, show up at any any hearings. Trump was going to do that from the get go. There, there well, was there was no way that Trump is going to agree to a rational process he wouldn't agree to a rational process for releasing his taxes. He wouldn't agree to a rational process for picking administration uh, slots at the secretary level. He's not going to agree to a rational process in his own impeachment. And obviously, he's uh, kind of in and out of reality the way he's like screaming yeah. and, and going off all the time. Look, so I, if, if I, he's I think he's not going to agree to a rational process in this, right? What is the next step that can be taken to to force the information out so that the process can start to proceed? Well, they're the House Counsel is going to have to go to the courts on the subpoenas. But yes. um, look, I, I can't figure out what this White House is doing in the first place. You know, they released the call notes that included basically the roadmap 
that the Democrats are now using to, you know, to go through the impeachment process. You know, they sent over the whistleblower report. They released the call notes in some attempt, I guess, to, to be transparent. And then within a couple of days when – and by the way, who at the White House read the transcript of that call and said, this is a good <laughs> idea to put it out? I mean, it's like – it's you know, the, the gun barrel was still hot and smoking. I mean, it, it, is, it is not a good transcript. It doesn't contain explicit quid pro quo, but it's throughout uh, implied. And by the way, you don't need quid pro quo uh, if you've got – you know, three hundred ninety-one billion dollars or million dollars on the table for Ukraine in in their defense against uh, Russian aggression, and you haven't released it, and they want a White House meeting, and you're not giving it to them, and you say, "I need a favor, though." That's, you know, I mean, that's about as as far as you need to go. I can't understand why they were compliant for the first two or three days, and now, you know, now they're going to stonewall. Um, it it makes no sense to me that. If they were going to go here, which is just stonewall and and ignore subpoenas and set up a you know maybe maybe just to drag it out as long as possible, why did you choose to do what you did the first couple of days and basically give uh, Democrats the messaging platform for the last two weeks, which has now also changed you know changed public opinion as we said before, uh, you know they they put this train up on the tracks and and got it rolling and. Now the Democrats are are off to the races. So I, you know, it's all these subpoenas are going to end up in the courts. Obviously, Article One and Article Two are both still in the Constitution. I think the courts will have to come down on the fact that the Congress has a right to oversight. You may not like how they do it. You may think it's too partisan. You may think that you know this is a witch hunt or or whatever. But uh, you know, if Republicans, if the shoe was on the other foot, and this is a Democrat doing these kinds of things, and Republicans. Uh, you know, had all of their subpoenas uh, basically ignored, uh, they'd be throwing a huge fit as well. So this is going to have the effect of dragging it out, slowing the process down. Maybe that's what the White House wants. Maybe they think that they can, you know, start another offensive and, you know, against Schiff and Pelosi and, and really turn it into a partisan battle and that somehow they'll come out, you know, uh, ahead in that process. But uh, to me, it just, it seems like, uh, nobody over there knew what they were doing, especially in those opening days, because it seems as though they put themselves in this position. So well, D- Dave is right. Sorry, Luke. Dave is right. But he missed the most damning part of releasing that transcript. And that is if three days later, you're going to blame uh, Rick Perry for making <laughs> you f- place the call and saying that Rick Perry wanted me to call Ukraine over liquefied natural gas and then you release a readout of the call that doesn't even talk about liquefied natural gas. <laughs> well, and, and let's not not forget standing on the on the lawn of the White House saying, "Yeah, they should investigate the Bidens." I mean, uh, you know, there's been ten different messages on this. Uh, there's no strategy. Nobody in Congress knows what to do. You've got basically Republican senators going on. Uh, Sunday talk shows saying, you know, we got to have an investigation into Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, you know, three years after the fact. I, I mean, this is all over the place. And, and I think until they figure out, you know, a real strategy on this, they're going to continue to to sink. And uh, I honestly don't know what they were thinking uh, in the opening days of this, except that maybe somebody just thought, well, we'll, let, we'll just get it all out there. It's, you know, tear the Band-Aid off. It's not as damaging as 
you know, as, as uh, people will think and, or, you know, nobody will buy this and we'll let the, you know, big Trump, you know, bullhorn, uh, you know, sort of sit over the top of this and be loud and, and, you know, keep his base engaged. But the fact is he's put into the public record now some real, some real troubling stuff. So uh, just a, a couple of quick short answers here to, to start winding this, this topic down. How long can the public sort of expect this to be circling around before there's some direction and resolution? Is this, is this going to eat the whole election cycle? Yes. Is that, and is, yes. and, and is that the plan? No, I don't I, look the, and Dave alluded to this. Pelosi didn't want to do any of this. Uh, she, she's, I think actually been really smart about this and she's given speeches about, look, if you got problems with Trump putting kids in cages, we got to deal with that at the ballot box, not, not through impeachment. She's narrowly focused on this Ukraine call and apparently the Australia call and the United Kingdom call as well. And his uh, open request for China to do the same. That's what she's going to focus on. I, I don't think the Democrats, necess- there are a few Democrats that wanted this fight to last between now and the election. That's, a, I think, a small group. But now everyone knows we, we have to d- deal with this. Uh, it's about something bigger than Trump. It's about protecting the Constitution. But I think there's no way that it, it doesn't kind of drag on through next year. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the ideal scenario for Democrats is to pass articles of impeachment you know, before Thanksgiving, which is what they've signaled they want to do, and for the Senate to take it up, you know, after the after the break uh, in January and February, so that this is out of the way and dealt with basically before the primary contests start happening in February in Iowa and New Hampshire. So that's where they should be going. You know, whether that will happen with uh, the White House kind of dragging their feet on the subpoenas, I just don't know. Okay. Last quick, quick last question for you, for you, Dave. If Trump's out. Who does the GOP put in? Well, Pence becomes president, and then uh, <laughs> right. But but, uh, but who do they see, run? And then you'll see whether or not anybody wants to challenge him in a primary. Um, first of all, I don't I don't foresee the president being removed from office, so it's a you know a almost impossible situation. I would think, uh, depending upon how this all goes, if that were to happen again, just a you know infinitesimal chance that that does happen. I think you'd probably see, you know, someone like Nikki Haley, maybe a few others who would look to run in a primary. But boy, think about having to organize, you know, a, a primary campaign against then a sitting president who had elevated. Um, and who knows how Pence would handle all of this? Could you imagine trying to plan a, you know, a campaign that launches in weeks or days even before the process starts? I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, we would really be in an unprecedented, historically incredible process. I just don't think it's, uh, it's going to happen. Well, Mark Sanford's already in the race. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've gotten as far as we're going to get on this today. I want to change topics into something possibly a little less exciting, but no less relevant, that most people probably aren't paying much attention to. Although, like a millennial with their first credit card, we've had to raise the debt ceiling. Now, with all the noise going on, most people didn't catch this one. So let's get caught up on it a bit because I'm assuming that if the media outlets aren't covering it, it can't be that big a deal or too detrimental to most people. Raising the debt ceiling's not bad, right? <laughs> I'm wondering why we ever even had a tea party. That's, that's as a Republican. Where did the tea party go? Where did they go? I know. Uh, all these politicians that got elected in 2010 and 2014 
to kind of as budget revolutionize hawks. Washington and and to you know you you a lot of public policy actually came out of the Tea Party the sequester for example a lot of you know a lot of things were being done uh, in service of trying to control the deficit of course you know. What happens? I think, but both parties suffer from this. When you get power, you keep power, and you know you don't hold your own to account. And and uh, the result is whether whether it's Democrats raising spending or Republicans cutting taxes without the appropriate reforms on loopholes and other things, you know, we end up right back in the same place, which is deficits go up and debt goes up, and you got to raise the debt ceiling. Is is it just Democrats raising spending? No, or, it's a, or is the Republican party? Republicans are guilty as well. Uh, a pox on both their houses, which is what created the Tea Party in the beginning in 2010. I mean, it was a lot of Republican candidates getting beat in primaries in 2010 because of the energy on the right to take on Washington spending. And 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 once we got power uh, in the House first, in the Senate uh, next, and then in the White House, uh, each time it diminished that appetite for reigning in Washington because when you're in control... You don't want doesn't you need don't to be want, you want in. to be reined in. So when we talk about reining in Washington and and this spending, there's there's probably some misconception on where the overspending is going, right? A lot of people sort of make an assumption whether it's whether it's social security or military or or uh, paying for immigrants or or anything like this. So so where is the overspending going? And more importantly, where are the elements that we can pull back to to not be overspending as much? Well, the first answer is entitlements, but that's the third rail for, for both parties. Donald Trump uh, in 2016 said we're not going to we're not going to mess with entitlements, taking basically taking off the table uh, where all the money is to go actually try to make some reforms and do some things. Uh, and really, any Republican advocating at this point, um, you know, reforming entitlements is you know either bound to get beat up by this president or beat up by the voters. Uh, but that's where the money is. You know, the, the old saying, you, 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 you know, you go where the money is, that's why you rob a bank. Entitlements is is the bank. That's where all the money is. Well, uh, I, there's only I so think, much you can do on I domestic think, spending. I think the last major expansion of entitlements was a little something called Medicaid Part D. That's right. I think that was under George W. W. Bush. Bush. Right. Uh, and I think it was largely to win Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I don't know what the total dollar figure is on Medicare Part D at this point, but it was four hundred billion at the time, if I recall. Yeah, and it's it's, uh, it's got to be a heck of a lot that. bigger than that now. Yeah. So in the in the entitlements, are there areas where you think we can pull back? Realistically, it's it's not politically feasible. I think it's point. very difficult. Uh, th- certainly, there are. There, there are examples of waste, fraud, and abuse in every one of these programs, and you can and you can tighten the screws in that way, and and just to make sure that the actual program is being funded and that that someone isn't running off with with the cash. Uh, but I think how do, how do you take away a prescription drug benefit from senior citizens? Um, are we really going to change the eligibility age for Social Security? Are we really going to uh, cut back the benefit for Social Security? I mean, people basically count on those programs to help them manage financially their lives from the age of 65 until till 90 or 95. It is a huge part of people's planning and, and how, they, how they look at the world and how they make decisions. 
So it's very, very difficult to, to change any of those things. And, and certainly there are other things that we can do within the budget context that, that we wouldn't even have to touch those entitlements. We touched on this in an earlier episode, but we, we just cut the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 21%. There's billions of dollars of revenue that we just gave away. No, that's 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 not true. The effective tax rate for corporations was never anywhere near 35%. Virtually no corporation was ever paying 35% uh, in corporate taxes. That's just that's a red herring. So wait a second, are you saying that corporations are paying the same now as they did before the tax cut? Yes. You are. Uh, yes, I'm saying that tax reform didn't do what tax reform was supposed to do. We lowered the rate but we didn't get rid of the loopholes. Uh, what what was supposed to happen is you were but supposed to create an equity the, in the tax code so that everybody was basically paying their fair share. I don't want to disagree with you trashing the Republican <laughs> tax cut, but what you're arguing doesn't make any sense because what you're saying is that that they're paying the same amount even though that their rate dropped fourteen percent. No, I think I think uh, I'd have to go back and look, but I, I'm sure as a as an aggregate they're paying some less. But they were never paying 35% and they're not paying 21% now. Right. They're so paying maybe far a, less. A, maybe Absolutely. It's a, it may be a, well, it, they were paying less than 21%. Amazon's never paid any income tax. It's, it's outrageous. <laughs> and GE, by the way, uh, you know, the, 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 the owners of MSNBC, they haven't paid income tax in many of the previous years. Um, we have to build a, a, a fairer tax code so that everybody's carrying their weight. That's not what we have right now. There's too much built into the tax code by the lobbyists, by the swamp, uh, and and it seems like uh, you know we can we can pay lip service to draining the swamp, but it's full of more alligators now than it ever has been. Well, and if if it's the corporations that are that are paying for the lobbyists that are helping the politicians, are those loopholes ever going to get closed? No. So. The, the the corporations aren't really contributing their fair share. The entitlements can't really be changed. As this debt ceiling goes up, what's the what's the effect of that debt ceiling being raised on most people? And if it keeps going up and up, do we come closer and closer to another government shutdown? Well, look, here, they're not really connected in a lot of ways. Here's the real effect on on. Uh, the average person's life, more and more of our discretionary dollars are spent servicing our debt obligations, right? We pay more in interest. We, the more we borrow, it's just like a credit card. The more you borrow, the more interest you pay every month. We are selling all these bonds. We have to pay interest on the bonds. A higher and higher percentage of our tax revenue that we collect every year is going to pay the interest on our debt. We are not making any progress on paying down the principal. We are simply paying the interest. Who are we paying that interest to? Well, it varies. Uh, you know, there are a lot of holders of the United States debt. You know, for years, everyone just assumed China held it all. They don't. Uh, they, they started buying less and less of our debt. Uh, a lot of it is our own government uh, that holds the debt. Uh, there are a lot of pension funds that hold uh, big portions of this debt. There's a lot of other countries that that uh, believe in the security of the United States economy, and that's why they want to buy bonds from the United States government. It is the safest place literally in the world uh, to, to put cash. Mm -hmm. 
so as the debt ceiling grows, there's no real other than paying extra interest, there's no real negative effect to most people. So there's no as there's long no as we don't as long politicians as we, wouldn't keep doing it. As long as we don't reach the tipping point, which is where we have so much debt and it increases our interest payments to the point that we cannot meet those obligations. Mm-hmm. And what happens there? Well, you, you see what happened in Italy and other places in Europe where they had too much debt too much debt service and you know a lot of these countries have defaulted on paying the debt service well that rocks the economy i mean it's taken italy years to recover and then you know they had to have the um, uh, international monetary fund come in and and provide cash for a bailout this happened in ukraine it's happened in a number of countries in europe it's a disaster for the economy uh home values go down uh, you know, retirement funds are are disappear overnight because the the confidence in the economy goes down. I mean, there's massive problems uh, if something like that were to occur. So, just so that I'm I'm getting it right, the the problem doesn't really exist until it's a massive problem. Yes, right. It's sort yes. of a sort of a zero sum game. It's it's a kick the can down the road problem until it's a we can't ignore this problem. And how far out is that? It, well, it, it depends, and this is, this is the real challenge. The, the theory of economists and some politicians is, well, if we do these things in the economy, then our economy is going to grow. And if the economy grows at a, at a high enough rate, then we'll never have a problem because we will be generating more taxes, we'll be generating more revenue for the government, and we'll be able to pay these obligations. The real rub comes, and the reason why it's hard to predict how much time do we have, what if the economy contracts? What if interest rates go up? What if interest rates go up? There's they, a whole bunch of ways to get at this problem. And um, you know, as long as the debt and the deficits are uh, at, a, at a sort of relatively stable percentage of GDP, you won't get into a, into real trouble. The problem now, though, is as the debt grows and as these interest payments grow necessarily to, to meet them, there are a lot of other priorities you can't fund. So, you know, you, you're getting squeezed. You're squeezing out all the discretionary spending, entitlements that are basically off the table now because... The Democrats aren't really willing to talk about it. Republicans aren't willing to talk about it. Those things are going to continue to, uh, you know, you got this massive demographic bubble in the baby boomers uh, who are all kind of retiring now uh, at a huge rate. They're living longer. Uh, they have more health care needs. Um, and, and as this huge demographic bubble kind of works its way into their 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, there's there's that pressure on 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 the budget. And so now you can't do things like infrastructure. You can't do things, uh, you know, like education and healthcare um, because you're, you're obligated to these huge entitlements and the, the portion that you have to pay out of the, basically the annual revenues generated by the government towards debt service is huge. And it squeezes out the rest of anything you can do. Frankly, future Congresses and presidents will have their hands tied by this for a long time. Uh, until something happens in the dynamic economy like it did in the 90s, 
uh, and where you had, frankly, people talking to each other about ways to solve problems, um, where you could create an actual, you know, sort of paying down in the principle where revenues really did outpace uh, expenditures, and then you start eating away at that principle. That's that's when you get into a a place where you can start looking around for other priorities to fund. But this was the stated goal of the Tea Party movement, right? right. The, right. the stated goal of the Tea Party movement was to tie the hands of government with obligations, whether it's tax cuts or whatever, uh, debt obligations. They didn't care anything to, to restrict uh, legislators and presidents and governors uh, and legis legislatures uh, to restrict their ability to do anything with government in terms of programs or initiatives or infrastructure. They wanted anything extraneous to stop, basically, except debt payments and national defense. And they like they didn't want anything else. So the priorities that you're talking about that get squeezed out. Mm hmm. If that's the infrastructure and the education and and, and the healthcare defense, is is that more the net effect to the everyday person? Whether it's jobs that infrastructure infrastructure would create, or better education system for people coming up in the world, better healthcare, an opportunity for for some sponsored healthcare, are we sort of looking at a at a at a place where? You know, due to tax cuts that benefit corporations, the average person is less likely to have infrastructure, education, and health benefits. Is yeah. that is that sort of the line that we're drawing, even though it's a little bit of a foggy line? But see, those same people also depend on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. So uh, it's 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 bigger than just what are the discretionary priorities that I have versus how much available revenue after debt service and entitlements. Uh, and national have, defense. And national defense. I mean, there's certain things you can't, you just can't write out of the priority list. They, they're there. So I think, I think what's interesting about this topic is uh, the debt ceiling, it's maybe not the one that causes the most, the most fire in the media conversation, but the long-term effects of it could be catastrophic for the country and for individuals. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the other thing that's catastrophic about this whole debt ceiling debate is that Congress is so dysfunctional that they, when there are bills that must pass, uh, one being increasing the debt ceiling, um, we, we, we have been in the position a few times in the last few years where we had enough money to pay our debt service, but because Congress couldn't agree on either a spending bill or what to raise the debt ceiling to, that we almost defaulted on our national debt just because we were dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Not because our economy couldn't sustain our debt, but because politically we were so dysfunctional. And uh, it's just a, t it's a sign of the times. I, I, I don't know what the magic bullet is on that, um, but I mean, maybe we should get rid of the debt ceiling as something that Congress has to vote on. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. It doesn't. It's do just a weapon. It's just a weapon at this point. And, and both, it's a both sides have weaponized it. Um, probably uh, the Republicans to more effect, but it is uh, it is something that we ought not have hanging over our heads, particularly at a time when we can't really talk to each other and solve problems in Congress. Yeah. And so, so if this is something that, that, that is affecting the, the people who are listening to this podcast, and if, and if you're seeing the, the weaponizing of this, the debt ceiling uh, affecting you negatively, 
take a second. Let us know your thoughts. Hop on to theamericancentrist.com. Give us a couple of questions. Let us know how it's affecting you uh, on a regular basis. Um, so, all right, I want to get into into a, a, a different topic here with uh, the redistricting that happens, gerrymandering, and and with politicians kind of catering to the donors who are by nature the the furthest of the extremes. Um, are political parties paying any attention to these types of problems, these smaller problems, these less tentpole problems, and do they even really have to anymore? This is a favorite hobby horse of mine. Um, I think I think redistricting has uh, gerrymandering and and kind of the process that we have around this country has contributed more to the elimination of um, the 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 centrist politician and the centrist voter than any other thing uh, out there. And if you looked 20, 30, 40 years ago and you took the most conservative Democrat and the most liberal Republican um, and you took every elected official in between them, you had about 40 or 50 members of Congress who operated in that sort of center uh, area, you know, in in Congress, and it was, it was the conservative Democrats and and moderate Republicans were able to to drive a lot of a lot of policy because they held the key to how to build a congressional majority. Well, and even With, even overlap, <clears throat> there were there were conservative Democrats that were far more conservative yes, than the liberal Republicans. Absolutely. Today, you can't find a Republican in Congress who is more liberal than the most conservative Democrat. There's no overlap yes. anymore. Yes. And that's because of how we district. Uh, we're sitting here right now, Jeff and I both work in Iowa and live in Iowa. Well, I kind of live in Colorado now, but- um, Kind of. Uh, our our redistric <laughs> redistricting process in this state is very unique. There are a couple of other that come close to it, but we have a, a, a completely objective, uh, algorithmic approach to redistricting where it is based on population, compactness of geography, geography and contiguousness. So you don't have these districts that look like, you know, a crazy ink blot blown around in a wind tunnel. You've got very uh, normal looking square, round, contiguous districts and and who you get thrown in with is who you get thrown in with. And so there are there are districts, you know, we just had two congressional districts change hands in the last election. That's half of our congressional districts. Other states have created super red districts, super blue districts. And if I'm running for Congress, all I got to do is get the nomination of my party. Uh, and so I'm worried if I'm a Democrat, I'm worried about the, you know, who's on the left coming for me. If I'm a Republican, I'm worried about who's on the right coming for me. And I couldn't give a shit about who's in the middle. That's the problem we've worked ourselves into. Nobody's talking to voters in the middle anymore because they simply don't need them for their elections. If I can get my nomination, I'm safe. And so this, to me, this is a, a, a structural problem that if, if I could wave a magic wand to try to fix politics in this country, it would be to make every state create districts the way Iowa does, because it is it is absolutely free of partisan politics, and you end up with districts that are that are competitive. The more competitive districts you have, the more moderate members of Congress you have, the more they're willing to work with each other to solve problems. We don't have to retreat to our corners just to protect our right or left flank and the base of our party. 
Well, and I totally agree with this. Like it, it is, it is such a contributor to the problems. The and what we've learned is that typically when you have something that that causes a huge problem or is a contributor to to dysfunction, uh, you can go to the courts and and try and get a resolution. And and you know these districts have been taken to court and judges have figured out, oh yeah, that these are a problem. These are done politically and not the way they're supposed to be done. But here's the rub. There is no court that it has the capability to do what Dave just described. And a lot of them just turn it over and say, we, we can't do this. And we need to have a nonpartisan, very objective group of statisticians in each of these states drawing these districts. And it's going to be very difficult for the leaders of both parties to agree to that because like what happens in Iowa every 10 years, it is a complete mystery to the leaders in the House and the Senate and the governor on what these districts are going to look like. Not only the congressional districts, but their very own district. Mm -hmm. And it's nerve wracking for, for all those uh, elected officials, but it gives us a system that is so much more fair. And you do have competitive elections. We have a lot of competitive legislative elections as well as competitive congressional elections. As Dave mentioned, we had three Republicans and a Democrat two years ago in our congressional delegation. Now we have three Democrats and a Republican. That's a huge change in one election cycle. You don't get that kind of change when you have districts that are 100 percent Republican or 100 percent Democratic. So preach the, the process. Uh, of, of the redistricting, how does that, how does that, I mean, it sounds like people are stacking the deck, right? The, Currently. The, the, yeah. the, the, yes. the parties are stacking the deck. <laughs> yes. So how did they get away with starting that is, is, is the first part of this question. How do, how do they execute it? And then secondarily, how do we, if, if we can't wave a magic wand and we can't use the, the judicial system to actually change it, how do we start to shift that so that at, at least people know that the deck is being stacked against them. It, it would it would help, first of all, for people to know that the deck is stacked, because that's the only way you can start is to have people understanding that part of our, our politics is a little bit of, of a prisoner here to a system that preserves uh, where, where each each member preserves their own power as best they can. So, you know, if if the Republicans control the legislatures, they're going to make sure the districts are drawn to protect Republicans and vice versa with the Democrats. Um, it would be I mean, this is where this is where you ought to light a fire under a new Tea Party, which is like, how are we going to get a politics where we actually have to go back and work with each other and talk to each other and persuade each other to solve problems? You can't do it when when it's just it's just protect the flanks at, at all costs. Um, you know, and it's the problem is this can't be a, a federal mandate because, you know, each state writes their own election laws. Uh, that's part of our federal system. Uh, but what you could do is you could start a movement where a lot of people uh, recognize that this is a problem in their state. And, you know, you you may not want if you're in if you're in Mississippi and there's no chance that the Democrats are going to take the legislature in Mississippi, you still may want districts that that create a situation where you're going to get maybe a little better Republican. <laughs> and that would be true for in, in Democratic states as well. Uh, there are a lot of moderate Democrats in in California that have gotten wiped out by 
the system as well. And so, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, with a Democratic caucus in, in a state like California that's way to the left of where the average voter in California is. So, well, but California's changed. Uh, the, things are now done very differently in California in two ways. The jungle primary. One, one is one is helpful. One is not helpful. One is they they did change their redistricting, and so now the districts are done more objectively. Uh, there's less gerrymandering, which is a positive. But then they've gone to this system where the top two finishers in a primary, regardless of of party, end up in the general election. And I still haven't sorted that system out in my head. You get some really strange results when that happens. I've done a fair amount of work there, and it is a crazy system. And it it ha- it does tend to uh, it has the effect of disenfranchising some people in certain political parties. When you have two Democrats get the top two spots, you just really depress Republican turnout in that in that general election. And so it it has. It has all kinds of effects, but uh, it's not an experiment I'd want to duplicate in other states. So to speculate just a little bit, when you talk about, you know, creating these districts in order to protect your flanks, mm-hmm. and, and it sounds like it's being done on, on both sides. Yes. Okay. So would you assume that the the politicians making the move towards this are doing it just to protect power or because they genuinely believe that protecting that flank gives them the opportunity to protect their constituents the best? No, it's the former. Yeah, this is this is pretty <laughs> simple here. Uh, <laughs> nobody likes running for re-election and having a challenging re-election. If you can make your district better for yourself, you'll do it. This is just the preservation. You want to make it easier to win. Of, the pursuit of self-interest in politics is, you know, uh, never going to go away. Um, you know, n- none of these men and women want to want to have tough reelections. If I can give myself an advantage by drawing a district up that I know I'm going to win every time, I'm going to do it. Uh, the incentive has to be it, it has to be that voters start to demand a system that creates more equity for them, where uh, they're being where, where where voters who I think. Most voters, even though they sort of express a partisan interest, there are a lot of voters in the middle. That's why we're doing this show. There's a whole bunch out there who feel like they're not being talked to and not being represented. If they if they knew that that the conversation could come to them instead of only to the to the to the right and left silos, uh, you'd see, I think, a, a bigger demand for for change in redistricting. Uh, laws around the country. Well, and and the market for screaming and shouting at your base dwindles if, if you have a situation like that, and and that's that would be a terrific outcome. And it makes you have to work a little bit harder by actually following up with some policy and having some some ideas on how to fix some things, as opposed to just a, a couple of <coughs> taglines, which you know that's it's it's great marketing, but it doesn't really help anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So shifting a, a little bit. Uh, to the the 2020 election, we'll, we'll sort of we'll sort of end here. Um, given that incumbents typically win, can the Dems come together enough to put out a candidate that not only can the party get behind, but who the undecideds and maybe the moderate Republicans and those who are normally not invested at all in politics can get behind in in order to change things? Well. Uh... As Dave said in a previous episode, we will see. <laughs> uh, it, it, this is this is a big debate. 
going on in, in the Democratic Party right now. And, and there's literally uh, presidential debates going on. And the, the question is, is the best way to take on this incumbent president uh, to reach for the middle, to be a party that, that um, tries to win back voters in the middle, tries to win back voters that voted for Barack Obama twice and then voted for Trump? Uh, is that the approach we're going to take? Or should we say, hey, if you voted for Trump, no matter what, no matter who you voted for before, we don't want you. We're just going to we're going to double down on on cities. We're going to double down on uh, the most progressive people that we can find. And that's how we're going to win by by increasing turnout, by increasing enthusiasm among the most progressive of the of the Democratic coalition. And that's the that's the way to take back uh, the White House. Um, that's the debate that's going on. I think if you're at all interested in math uh, and you and you have some understanding of the Electoral College, you know that that the first path creates more options than the second path. And, and does the second path of, of heading further and further towards the progressives create a situation in the next presidential election where we're just in the opposite side of the boat and we've gone further to the right from the Republicans? Well, uh, not exactly because we may be able to keep the House. We may be able to win the, the presidency if we thread the needle with that strategy. But in my view, we'll never be able to win the United States Senate with that strategy. And the reason for that is that in the in the 17 states that are the most rural in the United States, the Democrats have very few senators. And until we can start to win in rural states, I mean, if you think about it, we have uh, New Hampshire and, and um, uh, Vermont. And outside of that, you have uh uh, Jones in, in Alabama, you have Manchin in West Virginia, and you have Tester in Montana, and that's, that's it. it. All the other rural states have Republican senators, and you cannot cede 17 states in the United States Senate and expect to ever get a majority because in the middle third of states, it's evenly split between Democratic senators and Republican senators, and in the least rural states, you have states like Texas and Florida that have four Republicans. Texas and Florida outweighs 48 states that the Democrats have. So if you are serious about trying to get the House, the Senate, and the White House, there's no choice. You have to go for that first path. You have to reach out to the middle. You have to reach out to voters who, who thought that Barack Obama represented change in 2008 and 2012 and who thought that Donald Trump represented change in 2016. And honestly, how can you fault somebody who who looked at the two candidates who doesn't who 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 does not view party labels as being meaningful, who thinks that Democrat and Republican is a proxy for just saying politician or politician? If change is what you were interested in, Hillary Clinton was the status quo candidate and Donald Trump was the change candidate. Strip away everything else, and I, there's, that's a lot you have to ignore, but he was for change and she was for the status quo. Yeah. So is there something that on the Democratic side they can do to bring some of the moderate Republicans over in a general election? 
Sure. It uh, start it started in 2018. Yeah, it starts I mean they, they're going to have to they're going to have to nominate someone that moderate voters will support and there are a number of candidates that are leading candidates right now that 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 moderate suburban Republican voters, women, many of them who've actually not, they're, they're no longer Republicans, they're independents now, uh, but there are a number of voters that they won't vote for. And I'm not going to do the Democrats a favor of explaining who they are. I think they probably know. But um, you, you could mess up this election pretty easy if you're the Democratic Party by nominating someone who just isn't going to have an appeal outside of the deepest blue states. Okay. Well, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up this week. Uh, we hit a bunch of really good topics and well, there's more coming next week. So. I can't wait for Dave to give the Democrats more advice. That's going to be what's great really, in the upcoming Jeff, episodes. You should, be, you should be paying me for this. I'm real good at it. <laughs> All right. Jeff, Dave, I want to thank you guys for joining the conversation. And for you guys listening, uh, if you want a further civil discussion of the topics, then get out there and have a conversation with someone whose experience is not yours. Avoid the echo chamber and let yourself be challenged. Do your part to affect change. Life is not for the faint of heart. I challenge you to find your own motivation and push yourself to stop complaining and start solving things just one tiny little thing at a time. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit us up on Twitter, Centrist Pod, with your questions, your thoughts, and subscribe. Make sure you share with everyone you know and maybe three or four people you don't know. 